0: This podcast episode is in partnership with and sponsored by Portland Textile Month. Portland Textile X Month Festival is part of a social enterprise founded and organized by Textile Hive to bring community and foster cross pollination amongst textile enthusiasts, artists, businesses, schools, and cultural organizations. This October, PTM has over 50 events focusing on the theme of new traditions. By creating and fostering textile programming that champions grassroots collaboration and dialogue, PTM creates meaningful opportunities for change. They partner with facilitators and organizations rooted in community building, sharing, accessibility, inclusivity, diversity, and collaboration. As a mission-driven textile organization, they reflect and make connections between the vibrant and diverse textile community in Portland and beyond. Learn more and sign up for events at texelx.org, which is also linked in the show notes.
1: Welcome to the Material Culture Podcast, where we're exploring narratives of weaving, history, manufacturing, and the people who make it all possible. When people used to spin yarn or weave cloth, there were no such thing as podcasts, and instead they would sit and share stories. I hope that this can be a place for you to do just that. As we explore what it means to create, I'm your host, Rachel T. Snack, not to be confused with Rachel E. Snack, who runs Weaver House, the parent company of this podcast. I'm not really a weaver, but I'm fascinated by what it could look like to create while dreaming of a better world, and what it could look like if we took the time to listen to each other's stories. This month, we are partnering with Portland Textile Month, which means that instead of just one episode, we're releasing three. The theme for this year's textile festival is new traditions. How has this year of pandemic and heightened inequality shifted how we practice art and commerce? When I heard this question, I immediately thought that for a lot of people, these questions of equality and justice aren't new. And that much of what I've learned this year has been from black and native people who have graciously shared their wisdom with me. That's why for our first two episodes, I really wanted to highlight Black and Native weavers, as these are cultures that our country is built on, without often being honored or recognized. What I might find to be new is often something that someone else has been practicing for generations, so I'm grateful to share this learning space with you. This episode, we talked to Lisa Shobana, a Black, Baltimore-based weaver trained in knitting and saori weaving. Lisa shared with us about her creative process, connecting with her ancestors and what it means to create free of expectations. We're all more connected than we think. Join us as we find our common thread. here with Lisa Shobana, who is a knitter, weaver, designer, and instructor who has taught hundreds of people how to knit. She's the author of Yarn Play and Yarn Play at Home. Her designs have appeared in a number of books, including Debbie Stroller's Stitch and Bitch. She's been a featured guest on HGTV's Nitty Gritty. She's into dogs, meditation, chanting, animism, ancestral lineage, healing, Art, literature, film, delicious food, good wine, beautiful shoes, things made by hand, and craft as a spiritual practice. So it sounds like we'll have a lot to talk about. Thanks for being here, Lisa.
2: Oh, I'm really happy to be here, Rachel.
1: Yeah. Well, so tell me, how did you get into fiber art and how has your practice grown into what it is today?
2: So I started with knitting back in, I think it might have been 1999. And it's funny how I came to knitting. I was really into collecting vintage designer wear and for me it was always a quest to have pieces that no one else had Mm. and so then suddenly everyone else was into collecting vintage designer wear and it was became really hard to find and really expensive because shops were buying a lot of pieces and so then I thought okay I have to start you know, making my own things. That's the only way that I'm going to have things that no one else has. And Mm -hmm. for some reason, like sewing never struck me. I thought I'm going to learn how to knit. And (laughs) little did I know, I had no idea like how technical knitting was. I had no idea how much math was involved. Had I known how much math was involved, (laughs) I'm sure I would never have picked up a needle ever, but I decided that that was what I was going to do. So I was going to do it. I took a knitting class and I was terrible at it. I was just the worst in the class, just really bad. But I just kept at it and I kept at it and I kept at it. And I was really obsessive about it, the way that I am about things when I decide that I want to learn something. And I just kept doing it until it clicked. And I think in my first couple of years of knitting, probably, I don't know, I may have knit like six sweaters, like eight sweaters, like, I was just, you know, obsessed. So that's where it, uh, that's where it began for me.
1: Yeah. How did you end up getting into weaving then as well?
2: So i had been knitting for a long time and i had been teaching for a while and I had a couple of books published and then I felt like I hit my wall with knitting. I think the books took like a lot out of me and then it, I wasn't enjoying it anymore. It just wasn't fun. Because at that point, it was my primary profession and I just, I wasn't digging it. I wasn't, I didn't feel passionate about it. And so I had been looking for something else for a long time and I just didn't know what that was. It was very frustrating. And a friend of mine said, oh, I'm taking this like weaving class, at the Soy studio. And I'm like, what is that? Hmm. So then I found out about it and I was like, wow, I think I really want to do this. So then I took a class and like everything with everything else, I was just really obsessive about it and just was going to the studio, going to the studio, going to to the studio. And then I got my own loom and that was just, that was just it for me. It was just really love at first sight. I just loved everything about it. And it's funny because as a knitter I am very, I'm a very neurotic knitter. It all has to be pretty, you know, perfect. And Soori, you know, is really about, you know, it's not about the, the machine doing the weaving. It's really about the human person, the weaver doing the weaving and letting mistakes be a part of the work letting the cloth tell you what it wants to be, not you sitting down and going I'm gonna make a scarf or I'm gonna make cloth or a garment. It's like I'm just gonna make cloth and the cloth's gonna tell me what it's going to be which I really love because for me as an animist, the cloth it, it's a it is alive it's a it's an alive thing that has a spirit that you're just kind of facilitating it's coming into manifestation mm-hmm. so i'm just kind of being present with whatever materials i decide to work with and then it kind of in, tells me how it wants to come together and what it wants to be you know and so or you're not aiming to make this perfect garment with no m- mistakes it's like no the mistakes you make along the way are part of the journey and it becomes like an intentional part of the work, which, and, and that's not to say that I now that there aren't things that I don't take out because there are definitely some things that I'll just look at and I'll just think like, yeah, no, <laughs> that I will take out, which is very like, i sorry, like, but <laughs> uh and for me normally it's just because something doesn't feel right aesthetically not because it's not um quote unquote good weaving right just because it just doesn't fit the aesthetic of the the piece yeah so i'll undo and kind of redo but mostly i really kind of let it flow and It's really like painting with yarn. You're not following like a a draft and whatever design work I do at the loom. It's coming like spontaneously. It's not something that I've sort of set out to say, okay, this is the way that I want this to go.
1: That's really interesting. I'm excited to hear more about Soori weaving, but I I did want to ask, I'm not really familiar with animism. Can you tell me more about that or like what it means to you?
2: Animism is that everything, you know, is alive. Everything has a spirit. You know, even this computer is made of metals and crystals and all kinds of technical things that come together to, to make a, a thing happen because there's a, a there's a spirit in them that, that's alive. And that's how we're able to you know have this conversation just like a chair chair is made from wood wood is from a tree it's it's alive and then it also takes on the spirit of the maker like becomes like a part of it
1: that's really cool yeah yeah Yeah, it's like how materials are connected to each other and and connected to the creator and and yeah
2: very cool exactly and it's just like everything you know you has a vibe you know, some things will feel like, oh, wow, I want to have this in nice my space. And th- some things have a vibe and you're like, yeah, no, that's not, you know, for me because it it has a spirit. It might not be something that's, you know, for you. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. might not be meant for you. It might not be good for you. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
1: So when we talked last, you brought up some of the tensions that Black women can face when getting into craft. Uh, can you tell me more about that?
2: So... It was interesting when I started knitting, I mean, I knew like a few black knitters at the a shop, uh, the shop where I uh, learned how to knit, but there weren't like a lot. And, you know, there was just this feeling amongst the black community that like handmade things that wasn't good. That wasn't something that you wanted it wasn't pe- something that people wanted that black people wanted to have it wasn't something that they wanted to do and so over the years i've always always been really curious about that and really started to like question that and research that and have conversations about it and so when you think back to enslaved people that were craftspeople, this wasn't craft for them this was work. Mm-hmm. This was, you know, hard labor that was stolen for them, from them, that they were not accredited for in any way, were not paid for. And, you know, their work would go out with, you know, the name of, you know, whoever they were enslaved by or. And so it was. It was something that, you know, in the bones, that's associated as like work, like thankless work that is, is not yours, that you can't have, that you can't keep, that you can't own, that you can't be credited for, that you can't be paid for. And so I think that that feeling, even if people couldn't articulate that, that was, that was in the bones. Yeah. And so, you know, there was this always the feeling that something like shiny, new and store bought. That was the thing to like aspire to because, um, you know, it signified status. Mm. Um, It signified that you were a person of means. So I think we've come a long way as a people to really being able to reclaim craft and to have it be like a joyous thing and something that we're excited about and something that isn't labor or something that isn't because you can't afford the thing in the store. Because if anybody who makes anything knows, you know, craft is pretty, most crafts are pretty expensive. You know, people aren't making them because, you know, they can't afford to buy something. It's, you know, especially now in this age of fast fashion, you know, you can buy 10 of a thing for the cost that it may take you to make something. So it's just been really interesting to to watch that. And it just feels really good, like across all mediums to see Black people, like making things. I just, there's something to me that's just really, joyous about that because we don't have a lot of those things. And so I just think that's, I think it's really great. I think it's really fun. And I don't think people should get hung up on that. It has to be like the best or it has to be really great. It just has to be something that you enjoy that like brings you joy because for me, like if I'm having like a rough day to just be able to sit down and put on some music or put on a podcast and weave or knit, it just really takes me out of myself. And it's just so healing. It's so great. I don't know what people do that don't have that.
1: Yeah. That's so cool. Is that something that you emphasize when you're like teaching people how to like knit or weave like that, that joy or finding
2: your own rhythm with that? I don't teach people how to weave. I don't actually think I'm a good enough weaver to teach people how to weave, but I'm teaching people how to knit. Mm, because knit, I think, and this is the difference for me between knitting and weaving. Mm-hmm. In weaving, I think you really have to learn how to do it correctly, or what you're going to make is going to be a mess. It's not like Saori where it's it's not like that. So my philosophy toward knitting is different. I think you really have to learn how to do it right. But I think it should also be a process that you enjoy and that you just kind of have to be patient about and be okay with like making mistakes and be okay with like taking your time. I mean, we live in this society where it's like, I, I hate to see it when, both knitting and weaving where it becomes as an individual, it becomes like a production, like, hmm. like vibe. And you have to be in a hurry to like finish it. And, oh, oh, it's like, Oh my God, that's just so boring to me. <laughs> and it's so um, like tedious. And I've seen so many people burn themselves out in a craft from working from that perspective. And I think that's like tough when you want to try to make a living from it, but, you know, you're not a machine. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And that will, that's one thing that will like suck the joy out of you like so fast when you start, have to start producing for an audience and you're under a, a timeline and you have to make a certain amount of money. And I think that's really hard and bless anybody out there that like, can do that and feels good, good about that. But yeah, that's something that I learned that I can't, I can't work like that.
1: Yeah. How do you, how do you manage that? Keeping it joyful, even though it's something that brings
2: you income or something that you rely on bring me that much income anymore, because (laughs) I shifted away from that for exactly that reason. Mm. So I still sell a lot of pieces and my philosophy is if you're going to sell a piece, I think you should get as much money for it as you can. Absolutely. Because (laughs) there's a lot of money out there. There are, there's a lot of people spending a lot of crazy money and you put a lot of like heart into it and time into it. Mm. So I think you should get as much as you can. And then there are also pieces that I just want somebody like someone might fall in love with a piece and I just want them to be able to, to have it. Mm. So I, you know, work it out to make it like affordable for them. So it's just, you know, it's different because there's some pieces you see the person like with the piece and it's like, Oh my God, that person, that piece is for them. And I want that to work. I want them to be able to have that. So there's that there's also, yeah, a lot of, crazy money out there. And my work is worth that money.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's great to have like come to that conclusion. Like, I don't know. I feel like for a lot of artists, it's a long journey to get there to like see their own value and like ask for it. Do you feel like that was the case for you?
2: Um, no. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's a good no. thing. <laughs> I mean, my philosophy is ask for more than it's worth. Yeah. Um, and you know, on the other side, I mean, it's, that is so complicated there for a lot of people. If the price is not above a certain level, they don't think it's worth it. Yeah. They don't think good. It's like, Oh, that must not be so great. Yeah. So you just have to know your, you have to know your audience.
1: Well, so tell me more about being a Saori weaver and like what the practice entails and what it means to you.
2: Well, that's you know, my training and we all of my training and weaving, my only training and weaving is saori. So so saori weaving is a form of freestyle weaving that originated um, in Japan. And there's a still a huge Japanese community of amazing saori weavers um, just do the most beautiful, amazing, like inspiring work. And it's hard to describe because when you look at it, it is very kind of free flowing and intuitive. And it's not the thing where you're going to look at it and go, oh, I can like replicate that because you really, each individual weaver, you can look at its work and see that they own, have their individual signature. And again, it's not because they're following drafts or following patterns. It's like it's self-directed and they're following their own spirit and their own spirit and personality kind of comes through in the work. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, which I, I feel like I'm, even though I've been doing this weaving now, I don't know how long it's been, maybe seven or eight years. I feel like I'm still working to like find like my voice. I feel like I'm still fairly stiff and that probably comes from my knitting background. And I'm still trying to like loosen up Mm -hmm. a bit, both with the actual cloth and with the attitude that I bring to it. And I think that's also my personality, <laughs> you <kind of> like, <laughs> like loosen up. And that's, what, and you know, when you really get into Soria, when you really study it and know it, you can really look at someone's cloth and you can see like their personality. And you can also, in a way, you can sort of read, I mean, if you know them, you can sort of read what they might be like going through or feeling. Mm. It's yeah, it's interesting. Like I can look back at my own work and it's like, oh, yeah, that was like a tense time. And it like shows in the work or that's time when I was really kind of in the zone with it and just letting it. So the clock really does like speak to you. It speaks to you. When you're weaving, it speaks to you when it's when you're done it always like has a story to tell about mm-hmm. that moment and that that time and place and where you were and what you and the materials were kind of creating together. What would
1: you say like how would you define your voice now as you're finding it you know seven or eight years into the practice?
2: Oh boy um, Wow yeah I, I feel like. I still have a lot to learn and I feel like I have a lot to learn about weaving. There's still a lot, I mean, there's a lot technically about weaving that I don't feel like I have a solid grasp on. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's a lot I need to unlearn sort of about the, the making like process And one thing for me, I feel like it it can't be forced. I mean, like there's some days where I think, okay, I really should like weave. And then I sit down and it's like, it's just not, it's just not happening. And that's when I need to step away from the loom because in those moments, the work that I produce is not going to be good. It's going to look stiff. It's going to look, you know, forced. So you can't, you know, you can't force a flow.
1: Yeah, the word the word that I've heard you repeat the most since we've been talking is like joy, and like it feels important to you that also this work like flows out of a place of joy, right? Yeah. And like, yeah, lightness and not yeah, not the stiffness. That's that's cool.
2: Yeah, or or sometimes you might sit down in that state and you can work your way through it, but sometimes you can't, and that's the moments where I just need to say, okay, this is not for me this minute. Let's go do something. <laughs>
1: Lisa went on to share how her roots and lineage have influenced how she thinks about creating.
2: There is a connection with the work in that this work is, it's no longer work for me. This is leisure Mm. for me. And so I feel like I weave just not, not just for myself. I make just not, not just for myself, but also for my ancestors who especially those who were enslaved that didn't, you know, they didn't have a moment of leisure, Mm. you know, they didn't have like a moment of rest. So I feel like in doing this work, it's also a way to honor them and, you know, the dreams of like leisure and just rest like you know, I'm like their wildest dreams in that regard, that I can have this life where I can say to myself, oh, today I'm just gonna spend the day like weaving because it's something that I not because I have to do it, because it's something that I enjoy.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so yeah, it becomes a way of 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 honoring them and the struggles that they went through for me to to have a life where I can where this is something that I can do because I want to do it.
1: Wow. That's cool. And and it's cool to think about like future generations if you do this healing work now, they have to heal from less, right?
2: Like if if you've worked out these issues, you're not passing them on. That 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 really is you know the, the hope. And so yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot around that. And in doing this work, it's also important, again, that it's not always work. Because for me, it's weaving, knitting. It's a rest practice. That's what I do to, to rest. And I think it's really important for this, this this society that we live in. I mean, capitalism, everything is just like go, 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 make, 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 produce, produce, produce. And really, I really try as much as I can to disengage from that as much as one can do that and still be a functioning kind of person in society so you know it's like make less charge more or you know make less and you know barter you know but just yeah
1: yeah yeah freeing yourself from kind of this expectation uh, I don't know yeah that you have to you have to earn your right to
2: just like be alive and like
1: rest and and enjoy everything that
2: you do has to be like monetized or that you're resting so that you can work harder. It's like, no, I'm resting because that's my like divine right. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with Trisha Hersey, the Nap Bishop. Yes. Yes. I (laughs) I am an avid devotee and I've just learned so much from her about, you know, the value of rest. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no,
1: it's been, it's been amazing. And it's also um, so meaningful to me that like Black women are leading the way on, in
2: that, you know, because, um, yeah, but I, know. I hope so. I mean, I would like to think that because, you know, we need it. We absolutely have just been, you know, the workhorses of this, this, this country. hmm. So I think that's really important. And it's so it's interesting to me when I see black women really sort of step up and craft. And it's like, then, it, you know, they want to make it a business, which is great. But it's like a slippery, it's a slippery slope. I mean, if that, if it brings them joy to like, do that again, it's like, I wish them like all the blessings in that. but it's sometimes it's sad to me when it just becomes another like thing that you have to like work yourself to death to sustain. So it's, you know, it's, it's a tough call.
1: Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, because I think it's just such a, like thinking about these spaces where we really want representation, like making sure that, people who are underrepresented who are there are being compensated well and not being overworked and not being made, like put up on this pedestal where they have to be the solution to everything. Right. I just feel like all of that is like a very tricky thing to, to handle, but yeah, I don't know. I think when you have this base of like, I deserve rest, I deserve kind of like this feeling of freedom and feeling of like, I enjoy what I'm doing. That makes it easier to like, center yourself and kind of like keep asking those questions of like, am I doing this because it brings me joy? Am I doing this um, because it's good for me? Or am I doing this because I feel like I have these expectations that are imposed onto me by someone else?
2: Yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't have any answers about that. Everyone has to make the decision that is right for them, that works in their life, that sort of meets their needs. I just know that for me, it's like any sort of like production craft is, it's just not for me because that just sucks the joy, like right out of it. I mean, I can take, I have cloth that I've made like five years ago, like huge pieces of cloth that, yeah, one day I'll make a thing out of it the way that I go, I might make a garment like every two years um, Mm. because I'm not in a hurry to like, I'm not in a hurry to do it.
1: Well, it's living into this idea of abundance and like trust and like that, like I'll have time for that. You know, like I, I can, I don't need to get everything done right now. Right. And I would love to do that one day and one day I'll have time, you know, but, but not everything needs to happen right now. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I think that's very freeing. And I've been, I've been really, I was thinking of the NAP ministry the whole time that you were talking, like, cause I've found that to be so helpful and I haven't connected it. I, I don't think before I saw her account, that like I connected overwork and capitalism so much to white supremacy and how invasive it is in like every aspect of life.
2: I'm just deeply ingrained. And yeah, I mean, following her really made me question like myself because i am a person who is like constantly busy because it's just been so like drilled into me that you just have to keep going keep going keep going and as a black person you think especially when you kind of work independently it's like you got to make this money make this money make this money cuz you don't know when you're when the money's going to stop mm. and that's capitalism <laughs> you know? yeah so I, you know, the deprogramming around that is it's, it's deep and it's a, it's a constant like work in progress, but you know, with craft, yeah. It's like, I'll, when I start feeling myself pressured to finish a thing, it's like, like why, like what, what is the pressure?
1: Yeah. No, it's, it's crazy. Sometimes you can't even identify what the pressure is it's just yeah. like you have to you have to you have to
2: yeah and it's just like but but why I'm not this <laughs> is not something that I'm rushing off to a shop this is not any it's like it will get done when it gets done yeah
1: well so thinking about this last year and a half and you know COVID everything else that's happened what what have been some takeaways for you in that have there been any new mindsets or
2: traditions that you've you've thought about I didn't make a lot Um, Honestly, because I think like everyone, especially when we first went into lockdown, you don't really know what's happening. I was just kind of in this like state of like shock and didn't really feel inspired to like make anything, like do anything. I have very little like work to show for that time simply because I wasn't I wasn't I wasn't feeling it. And, you know, there was so much conversation around that time about all these hobbies that people were getting into and things that people were doing. And to me, that was just like another form of like just this busy work. It was it was also like capitalism at work. Like, yeah, you, but you still have like this... Attitude that you had to be like doing something, you had to have something to show for that time. And I don't really have much to show for that time, and I'm okay (laughs) with with that because I feel like I needed to use that time to be, you know, producing something. So I just felt like I just needed time to like do nothing to try to figure out where I was and everything that was going on. And you're trying to like check on your loved ones and make everybody, make sure that everyone's safe. So I wasn't thinking about like, like production. I wasn't thinking about things that I needed to use that time to like achieve.
1: No, that's great. And I think that's something that a lot of people could learn from. I would say that's a, I don't know if it was new to you or not to feel that way, but like the kind of practice of, of giving yourself grace and just kind of recognizing how much You've been through and how much, you know, just even the basic things like might have meant in in a time where you're under more stress. Like, I think looking back and being able to do that and be like, you know what, it was okay
2: because I did what I needed to do. It was what I needed to do. I mean, my, I was consumed with, honestly, my biggest thing during that time was trying to get like groceries delivered because that was like playing the lotto, whether you were Whether you could get a slot, whether you could get the things that you wanted. And I mean, I felt like that was my job, like during that time, just, you know, trying to make sure that I had toilet paper.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, when you think about, I I don't know, when I thought about the theme of new traditions, I was thinking a lot about how so much of this past year has been proving, it, it proved a lot of why capitalism doesn't work or isn't working in our current society and why white supremacy, like h- how much of us, how much of our society was like kind of built on those values and how much we need to strip them down. Like what kind of values do you feel like people need to learn to take the place of those things? We've talked a lot about the value of rest. Are there other things like
2: that that you feel like we need That's to do? Yeah. You know, on all levels, you know, which is kind of a core value of animism is recognizing how much we receive from the land, but, like, what do we give back to it? And with human beings, also, like, like reciprocity and having there be fair exchanges. I mean, and this goes back to what I was saying about my like how I price my work and what's, you know, fair. It's like, what's someone making like $100,000 a year, a fair price for them to like pay for my work versus somebody that's making $20,000 a year. What's fair is going to look different in both of those cases. And so for me, that's about reciprocity. And on the same note, I might see someone's work and they say, oh, this is the price. And I'm like, you know what? That's like, I, I can I can pay more than that. And I'll pay more than that because I feel like the work is like worth it. And because I can, yeah. And it's not a judgment on them about why they're charging, but it's because I rec- recognize the value in what they do. And I'm in a position where I can pay, afford to pay more than what they're offering. So, you know, it's just about, giving back at what, whatever level you can afford to give?
1: That's, I mean, that's such a good question to always be asking yourself, right? Because I think, it, you know, within the definition of reciprocity, like sometimes it's going to be asking for what we deserve and, and kind of asserting your worth. But if, if we want other people to see that, like we have to look for that in other people. And And I love even thinking about like, paying more than someone's asking for to show them like, no, I think this is what you're worth. And like that, that that might give
2: young artists like confidence to ask for more. And and absolutely. Because certainly people have, you know, done that, have gifted me in that way. And it's just, it's just so amazing because you might think that you're really asking for a lot because you're used to dealing with a certain audience. And somebody says, then someone says, no, I'm going to like pay you this. And you are just like, what? That's amazing, you know, but you just kind of keep it going. You just, the thing is to just keep it, you know, going. If it means you pay somebody, you know, $5 more than the, you know what I mean? It's not about the amount. It's about, you know, the spirit of it and recognizing people's work, recognizing people's worth. And, you know, it's also... With, you know, marginalized people, and it's about also recognizing what's been taken from people and just giving back, not because you, in relation to that person, owe that person, but it's just about resetting that balance, and it's like, you know, understanding their history, and what they've come from, and just like giving giving a little more, yeah,
1: I feel like, yeah, there's grace there, there's generosity there. Again, like this feeling of abundance. I don't know. I feel like those are all cool things to live into. and in and in direct opposite opposition to like the scarcity mindset, like, I have to work 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 because I don't have enough
2: right you know? yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's it's just terrible state that we're in in this country that people have to take these you know people are just like trapped in debt have to take these horrible 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 like low wage jobs that's never going to they still can't pay rent they so i mean it's just a I, it's a trap that i don't know when you're caught in that i mean it's easy for me to have a conversation about it but for someone in that i don't know how you i don't have any answers in that i don't know how you get out of that mm-hmm. Um yeah, because you're you're not in a position to like ask somebody to like demand that somebody pay you more because in that system capital, you know, it's not it's not gonna happen. So I, in that circumstance, it's like, yes, I'm aware of that. And I, I don't know. I don't I don't know how to solve those problems. I only know how to step up and do my part in it in situations where it's appropriate for for me to to do that.
1: Yeah. No, and I think I think that's all anyone can do. Like, yeah. But you're right that it comes with a certain amount of privilege to be able to
2: to just yeah to yeah to have this conversation about it. And I I I recognize that because so many people, you know, they're gonna be like, what? Like you know, that doesn't apply to my life. And it and it doesn't. Sadly it doesn't.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think acknowledging yeah, acknowledging your limitations but also being able to to where you can be that change, like to be it. Yeah. Yeah, that might not be the reality for everyone and it comes with kind of having this self-assessment of like where am I? Where do I have room to to give and and to stretch? Right. Um and where do I need to yeah, practice some of that self-care and rest. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. So what's what's next for your weaving practice?
2: You know, I am really excited about this and I have a vision about it. And I hope I'm not like jinxing myself (laughs) (laughs) about talking about that. this is what I want to do, but I really want to weave rugs. Mm. Um, So that I feel like is going to come into play in 2022. I hope to start doing that and like learning how to do it. Yeah. I just, it's something I'm really excited about. So yeah, that's really exciting. That's my next move. I hope (laughs) I always have an idea and then it just turns into something else, but that's, that's my plan. If you could give one tip to people just
1: getting started, what would it be?
2: I just think that, you know, making is like such a joy for me. And, you know, I encourage people to like, Do it to whatever extent they can um, and just kind of see where it takes you. Maybe you'll be good at it. Maybe you'll be crap at it. Maybe, you know, you'll start a thing and decide, oh, no, it's this other medium or this other craft that I'm into. But if you feel, like, inspired to try your hand at something, like, do it. You don't have to be an expert at it for it to be fun.
1: Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Rachel. It was my pleasure.
1: Our conversation with Lisa was so refreshing to me in thinking about craft as something that should first bring us joy and wholeness as people rather than just being a means to make money. While some of us have to be realistic and know what's possible in our limited circumstances, I love being able to dream about what it would look like to live into this leisure and freedom that Lisa pictures. And that really giving us space to find our own creative voice in weaving. I think freeing ourselves from the grind culture of our world starts with this view of abundance that hopefully flows into generosity towards others that allows us all to be more free. As I said earlier, we are doing extra episodes this month in partnership with Portland Textile Month, one of which is a community submissions episode based on the topic of new traditions in fiber art. Thanks to those of you who have submitted so far, but submissions are still open and we'd love to hear from you. You can find the submission instructions linked in the show notes. There are also lots of other great events and artists featured online and in person, so definitely check them out while you can. A huge thank you goes out to Lisa for our conversation this month, who you can find on Instagram at Shobana Weaves or on her website linked in the show notes. Thanks also to Philadelphia-based musician Michael Myers for the use of his song Weave off the album There Is Only Light. We are currently publishing episodes of Material Culture Monthly, so we'll be back to our scheduled programming in November. If you love the podcast, we would so appreciate you leaving a rating on Apple Podcasts. And if you have comments or questions for us, please email us at the address linked in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining us. And until next time, let's keep learning about what it means to create with each other in mind.